A lot of people are concerned that if you provide more generous benefits for children, we'll see people work less. Okay, But the bottom line for us is that we do not find this. And that's very important because when you look again at the effect of the benefits on families' income, the fact that there was no effect on work means that essentially for every $100 of benefit, the family income increases by $100. There is no offsetting effect where people work less and therefore losing income from the work side. Hi, Kat. Here hey, we Anna. go again. <laughs> yes, today we're talking about child poverty. So in the US and Canada, uh, families with children are disproportionately likely to be poor. So, you know, even pre-pandemic, for example, in 2019, in the US, 14.4% of kids were living in poverty, which is higher uh, than, for example, 9% of adults uh, who live in poverty. So, you know, child poverty is really a big issue that politics, you know, policy and nonprofits have to deal with. Well, this this gets to a topic that a lot of funders are concerned about, a a lot of people, communities are concerned about, which is um, the effect of the pandemic on um, on children and um, particularly with the closures of schools and the closures of high quality daycare centers and one of the things that we've been working on is, is our early school success primer. So this is for donors who are trying to understand how do we not lose a generation of children because of the pandemic. Um, and one of the things that we know is um, if you can't take a multi-generational lens, right, find out how you can um, make, support the families that are responsible for the children, then it's very hard to um, have an environment where all children can thrive. Right. So the question is, how do we support families? And there's many ways to do that. But one way is to just give them cash and child benefits in particular. Uh, So, you know, the whole idea of child benefits is to provide these families with cash so they can take care of their kids that decreases poverty. And, you know, based on economics research, we know that in the long run, this is also an investment that decreasing child poverty is going to, in the long run, increase this kids' incomes when they grow up and higher income means they can be self-sufficient and even pay more taxes, you know, yep. towards, uh, you know, supporting the economy and all of us. Yeah. Well, and of course, Ron, one of the reasons I love these conversations is you're an economist. So you're focused <laughs> on like earnings and workforce and, and how the uh, economy thrives. And, um, and even if someone is not focused on things like earnings, right? Um, addressing child poverty means reducing the kind of toxic stress that we know are associated with all sorts of other outcomes like uh, mental health, um, physical health, um, ability to um, make good decisions in life. So whether you're focused on the economics or you're focused on the social impacts, there are a lot of good reasons to understand what good philanthropy and policy um, efforts uh, we should be doing to reduce child poverty. For sure. But here I'm going to bring in back my hard-nosed economist (laughs) uh, uh, by saying that, you know, a big problem, though, potentially with cash that, you know, you just give people cash to take care of their kids is that, you know, once you have higher income because of that cash, well, you don't need to work as much, right? Just to put Mm. food on the table. Now you have that income. So potentially this child benefits could induce parents to work less. 
And well, why is that a problem? Just like from a purely accounting perspective, the problem is that you're giving them right more money so that they are less poor. But if it turned out that they then work less, meaning they're losing income from work, it's like a leaky bucket. You're pouring money in and then it comes out on the other end by them working less. And so, for example, for every hundred dollars of benefit, you know, uh, the family income would increase by a hundred dollars if there's no change in work, but maybe people are going to reduce their work by $10, right? And then that would mean that instead the income will only increase by $90 for every hundred dollar of benefit because 10 of that gets kind of, you know, taken away mm-hmm. or leaks in the mm-hmm. form of less work. So that's mm-hmm. that's always a concern, a potential concern with these benefits. Well, that's precisely one of the reasons why I'm really interested in what you and Mark talk about, because that trade-off, um, of, of, I, can't, I can't imagine talking to a, a, a donor or a grant maker that wouldn't want to in, reduce child poverty. But then it gets to the issue, how do we reduce child poverty and how do we avoid um, doing something that might actually have some other negative consequence. And, right. and hopefully Mark and, and your conversation will help help clear exactly. that up. Exactly. So Mark Stabile, we're going to talk with him today. He has this fascinating paper on the Canadian child benefit, which is very similar to the U.S. Uh, child benefit uh, that we have right now, which has been beefed up. So right now in the U.S., the child benefit is about 5,000 U.S. dollars equivalent per uh, per child. And that's more actually than the roughly 3,000 U.S. dollars per child that we have in the beefed up uh, oh. uh, benefit that we have right now. And even though it's so generous, what they find is that uh, every dollar of the benefit went to reduce poverty. There was no leak. There was no effect uh-huh. on work. So that's a really key finding for anybody in the U.S. who might be worried about the impact of more generous child benefits on work. Okay. Okay. That's great. And again, promising. Um, terrific. Right. You know, people like Joe Manchin, hello, who are really worried about, you know, this work impact. I mean, that's important. It could happen for sure. Economic theory tells us that that's a possibility, but it just turns out certainly in Canada, they're a close neighbor, they have a similar policy and they haven't seen any reduction in work from this particular policy. So, you know, I really look forward to my conversation with Mark. Well, and I think that's important to point out valid concerns the whole point of this podcast is, well, let's see where the evidence is. Um, And I think that's what you and Joe are about to talk about. You and Mark. Oopsie. There you go. (laughs) And that's, what did I say, Joe? Let's get Joe Joe on. Joe Manchin, go here. (laughs) Our our next guest. (laughs) First, first we'll look at the evidence from Mark and then We'll have the discussion. We'll invite Joe and see if whether or not the evidence persuades him. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Hello, everybody. So today we have with us Marc Stabile, who's an economics professor at INSEAD in France and an expert on child benefits. The reason why I invited him is because he has a recent working paper that's looking at the impact of Canadian child benefits, and we'll be discussing the results uh, today, and we'll be looking into how they can help us understand the debate in the U.S. about the expansion of the child tax credit. So welcome to the show, Mark. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Mark, before your most recent paper, what did we broadly know about the impact of child benefits on poverty and work? 
There, there's two broad areas that people look at. There's, you know, does it help with poverty and does it affect work? And within that, there's there's a quite a bit of literature. I would say that in general, we have found that giving cash transfers does help poverty. Right. The question is, does it do it dollar for dollar, as you suggested? But in general, I think we know, or we, the evidence has suggested that we can reduce poverty by transferring money. Um, the second question is, what does that do for work? And here is where things get a little bit more mixed. So on the one hand, uh, there are studies that look at unconditional benefits, right, where you don't have to do anything to get the benefits. And here, I think there's evidence from, from Canada, from the US, from other places that sometimes in some populations, this makes people work less. Uh, there's some evidence from Canada that I know about that for married mothers of a certain income, they may work less with these benefits. But uh, also the opposite effect has been found. For example, for divorced mothers, we find sometimes, not I didn't find, but others have found that sometimes they end up working a bit more, right? When you get to the conditional income support, i.e. Uh, we give you money, but you have to work to get the money or work some to get more money, uh, there again, there's some mixed findings. I think on average, I would say that uh, we have found modest positive uh, labor supply effects that you can actually, while encouraging people to work with these benefits, get small increases in work, not big ones. Great. So now that's the painting before your study. And so your study looks at uh, the case of Canada, so which is very interesting for us in the US because it's a country that's very close and similar in many ways. So uh, can you briefly describe the history of the child benefit in Canada before the most recent reforms that you're looking at in your paper? Sure. So I think for me, the place to start would be the early 1990s. And I think this is the place to start actually for Canada and the United States, because it's at exactly at this time when these two countries and perhaps some others started to move away from traditional welfare support as we know it, towards thinking that they were going to target benefits more towards families with children. So instead of supporting everybody in need, uh, we're, gonna, we're going to target these, these supports directly at kids and their parents. And the reason being usually is that kids are a more sympathetic audience for, for support. People are happier to give money to kids, but also kids have their whole life ahead of them, right? So you might think that helping kids, you get a, a better return because there's a longer time uh, to do it. And in Canada, we started a couple of programs over the 90s that did exactly this. The, the Canada Child Tax Benefit and uh, its partner, the National Child Benefit, which targeted families with children instead of everyone, made these benefits conditional on income and in that they they provided a certain amount of benefit for, for each kid, but then they began to phase it out at about 25,000 Canadian, or you can think of that as around 20,000 American. Uh, and that was in place for a few years. In the 2000s, early in the 2000s, Canada added what we would usually call a traditional baby bonus, right? A certain amount for each kid under the age of six, no matter what your income. Um, and that increased the size of the benefit a little bit. The existing one stayed in place. We added this unconditional baby bonus for every family. And, and that was basically the state of affairs prior to uh, the new child benefit that, that we studied. Right. So, you know, we, we see that there's a patchwork of benefits here. Some are conditional on income. You have to be lower income to benefit. And then there's a small top up for everybody. But then in around 2015, there's been a series of reform making those benefits overall more generous. So can you tell us more about what happened then and what was the rationale for the reform? 
Sure. So in 2016, uh, Canada changed governments. They went from uh, a more conservative government to a more liberal government. That government, interestingly, ran on a policy, a platform of helping the middle class. Right? You know, our study looks at poverty, but the 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 the, the platform was running helping the middle class, and this benefit was sold actually, not as a anti-poverty program. Uh, we can get back to that, but as a as a program for the middle class, it took all of these benefits the existing ones from before, and it canceled them all, and it merged them into a single, what they call the Canada Child Benefit, similar name, but a little bit different. And it was unconditional. You don't have, it is unconditional. You don't have to work for it. There's a certain amount for each child under six, a slightly smaller amount for each child over six, right? So, so as the child ages, they get a slightly smaller amount. And it also phases out, right? So it it starts, you start to lose a bit of this benefit at around $30,000, but actually families with all the way up to uh, incomes up to $170,000 can still get something. And it's paid monthly, right? Um, and in fact, it's extremely similar, you know, as I describe it, maybe this, this, this resonates, it's extremely similar to the US child tax credit that was recently introduced uh, with the Biden administration, and and I actually don't think this is an accident, right? The 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 U.S. National Academies of Science and Medicine and Engineering in a 2019 report thinking about how to help child poverty in the United States used the Canada Child Benefit as a possible design inspiration, right? There were others to think about too. Um, other work I've done with with scholars at Columbia University's Center on Poverty and Social Policy also used the Canadian Benefit as an example. And so what we're describing in Canada actually is a lot like what I think the the, um, the U.S. child tax credit looks like. Right. Well. So the new version of the U.S. child credit is quite similar to the Canadian system. But before this new expansion, what was different uh, in the U.S. compared to Canada? Well, I think before it was smaller. So so what happens? So a couple of things. One, it's smaller. Uh, now the U.S. one is, is more the size of the Canadian one. The second is that it goes to monthly payment, right? And it is something that that a larger share of people are entitled to. I think the U.S. one is even more generous. As far as I understand it, you lose nothing until you're well over 100,000 uh, income. So, you know, in a similar spirit, they made it bigger, they made it monthly, they made it easier to get, and they gave it to more people. Right. And right. importantly, so. they also made it refundable, meaning that before this new uh, reform, it w if you didn't owe any taxes, you couldn't get any benefit from this. And that excluded the poorest uh, people in the population from getting the benefit. And as you explained, that wasn't the case in Canada, where even before this most recent expansion, it was given to everybody and it was the opposite. It was capped in terms of income, you wouldn't be eligible if you have a high income, but if you're low income or have no income, then you would be eligible. So th these are some interesting differences that, you know, used to differentiate the systems while now, arguably, broadly speaking, the system we have in Canada right now and the newest version of the child tax credit uh, in the US are now quite similar to each other. Is that fair to say? I think that is fair. You know, one, one important caveat in the Canadian one, uh, is that because it's the amount is tied to income, right? You have to file your taxes. Mm -hmm. So uh, you're eligible for it, even if you owe no taxes, as you said, it's refundable, right? But you have to file taxes to get it, and and of course this this produces a small issue with take up, right? Because a lot of people 
a lot of families, it turns out, who have no income don't feel that they need to file taxes because they don't owe any mm -hmm. money. They know they don't owe any money. And if you don't owe money, you don't have to file your taxes. But without filing those taxes, the forms anyways, you can't get the benefit. Right. Right. Uh, which is a little bit different from uh, an unconditional baby bonus check where all we need to know is you have a child and you can get it. Right here, there's a little bit more information required, and that is that the tax authorities need to know how much money you have. Right. So this really points to the importance of, you know, the role of agents like social workers and, you know, uh, family benefit counselors and so on to encourage people to file taxes, even if they think they don't owe any taxes, in order to be able to avail themselves of these benefits. I think this is hugely important, right? Convincing people that, yes, uh, it's well worth your while to file a tax form. You know, you can get a monthly a monthly check out of it that that is quite a bit Absolutely. relatively speaking. Mm -hmm. So now yeah. back to the uh, your study and the 2015 expansion. So you know, as you said, the program was made more generous and importantly, it was supposed to help the middle class and not only poor people. So can you talk about how much extra child benefits people were getting after this reform relative to before and how it affected lower versus higher income families? So, so uh, there was new money in the system. So overall, the government is spending more than it, than it used to. But there were also winners and losers. So let's start with the losers. Um, you know, people who made over about 120,000, families who had over, about over 120,000, because we took away that unconditional baby bonus type part of our transfer system and, and combined it into this new one, they lost because they no longer, you know, they no longer got the same amount of money as, the, as they used to. So they have a negative uh, change in their benefits. The people who were earning, the families who were earning below 120,000, they had a gain. So those are the winners. Uh, in terms of the biggest winners, in fact, by design, uh, you know, we can talk about whether this is a good or bad thing, but by design, the biggest winners were people in and around 45, 50,000, which was, you know, a, a kind of working definition of what a middle-class income is, right, and was. Uh, and so they got the biggest boost um, bigger, in fact, than people who have zero income, who also had a boost, just not as big as the one in the middle class. Mm -hmm. So it really was, in relative terms, certainly a middle class promoting policy where benefits were largest for the middle class. They were the biggest winners. They were the biggest winners. Right. So now let's focus for now back to the poorer people and look at the issue of uh, poverty. So you're really using fantastic Canadian data to answer this question, which we'll see includes also the effects on people at different levels of income. Uh, but, you know, when we're going to look at all these effects, whether on poverty or on, on other income levels, it's not enough to just look at, let's say, how poverty changed from before the reform to after the reform, because, you know, many things happen at the same time that could have reduced poverty. And maybe it's not the benefits. There's something else that's going on that reduces poverty. So if that's the case, you know, we might confuse the effect of, let's say, economic growth with the ex effect of the expanded child benefit. So can you explain how you manage to narrow in and focus on the impact of the child benefit expansion specifically, as opposed to other factors that might affect poverty and income? Yeah, so exactly right. So you, we want to try and, and, and separate what's happening in the economy uh, from what this benefit did. And so what we do is what we sometimes call in economics a, a difference in difference event study framework. So we track changes in poverty 
yearly, sometimes more than yearly, from well before the benefit change, maybe 10 years before, uh, and then after the benefit change. So we can see what's happening to poverty year by year. And then we do this for a group that we think we know should be benefiting from the policy. In this case, we did it for single mothers, we did it for married mothers, and we did it for mothers with a high school education or less, just, just to be clear, right? Even though it's a child benefit, it doesn't go right to the child, right? It usually goes to the mother. And in each case, we compare these trends over time with a group of women that we think should experience similar labor market uh, trends, right? So single women, uh, single, single women without kids, uh, married women without kids, and then similar education groups, et cetera, to try and, and track similar groups over time and see how they deviate once the policy comes into effect. And then we can make this even finer in the sense we can say, let's look at women at a particular age range, some with kids, some without, watch what happens when the benefit comes in and see how poverty changes for one group versus another. Right. So the critical thing here is that we're going to look at gaps in poverty between the group that's going to be affected versus an unaffected group. And by looking at this difference, essentially we can interpret what is due to the benefit since only the affected group gets the benefit and not the other group. And therefore, for example, if we find that poverty in the affected group is lower relative to the unaffected group after this new reform, that would imply that the benefit uh, reduced poverty. So this is a technique that's often used uh, in economics, and it's really important to use something like that, again, to tease out the impact of the benefit itself versus other things that might be going on at the same time uh, in the economy. So now, using this technique, what did you find about the impact uh, of the expansion of these child benefits uh, on poverty in Canada? We find that poverty went down, right? And so let me, uh, let me first say that, you know, the, the group that has the highest poverty rates are single mothers and even higher rates for single mothers with, with, without a college degree. Okay. So in fact, 49% of single mothers were in poverty and we find uh, a five percentage point decline in that poverty rate. So this is pretty substantial, right? Five percentage points off a 49% base. Uh, if you look at married mothers, right? Far fewer married mothers are in poverty. About 11% of married mothers are in poverty. Uh, and we find about a two percentage point decline. So actually, in percentage point, in percent terms, it's actually bigger, but a smaller decline uh, for married mothers. And these are even larger still, the declines in poverty for mothers with less education by a couple more percentage points. Um, you know, let me just say, right, there actually are more children living with married mothers in poverty. But if you happen to be a single mother in poverty, your, your chances of being in poverty is very high. Mm -hmm. So basically, the, yeah. the takeaway is that the reform affected a lot of kids in poverty because most of them live with married mothers. And even though among married mothers, they are less likely to be poor, you know, these kids were affected as well as the kids, of course, who live with single mothers who are the poorest group in the population. So it was really a broad-based effect where kids in different family structures all benefited from, uh, from the reform. Now, yeah, That's right. go, go ahead. I'll say yeah. one more thing on that, which is, which is, you know, we often use poverty lines as our, so in poverty. So you're above a number or you're below a number um, because it's easy to think about and, and it's good to measure against something and a poverty line is something. But in fact, as you said, we have quite good data. We have, we have uh, millions of tax filers to look at. And so we actually are able to look at 
changes at other points, other income levels as well, right? And so there was also a substantial increase in income for people who didn't even make it to the poverty line, right? So, okay, we did not lift them out of poverty, but we did add to their income. So we helped them. You might argue, and I would probably agree, we didn't help them enough because they're still below the poverty line, but we did do something. And then just going back to our earlier discussion, because this there was a big chunk of the money targeted at uh, middle class, right? Actually, there was substantial increase in, in earnings for slightly above the poverty line families too. You know, you don't pick that up when you look at the poverty line, but you know, if the poverty line for a family is 42,000 and these people were earning 42,001, we still, we helped them as well, but we didn't push them over the poverty line, but they did have a substantial increase. Right. So it's important to see here that, you know, because of the awesome tax data you have, you can really look at detailed income groups and you were able to see that even people who weren't quite able to cross the poverty line and therefore become not poor, they were still helped uh, by this by this policy, which is quite important when we want to focus on the most disadvantaged in society. The, the policy actually uh, helped them uh, substantively. So. Um, now, if we, if we look at uh, the potential downside of this that people often have in mind, and we mentioned this earlier, that it might, these benefits might potentially discourage work. So uh, when you look at this issue specifically, what did you learn uh, about the effect of child benefits on work in Canada? Right. So this is something we've been pushing on quite a bit because I think you're exactly right. A lot of people are concerned that if you provide more generous benefits, it's for children, we'll see people work less. We find no evidence that people, mothers in this case, are working less. Mostly what we find is that there's no real change in work at all. Okay, We look across a bunch of different groups, as I mentioned, single moms, married moms, moms with less than college. We try some different uh, age groups. We, we try some different econometric specifications to try and, you know, it's a really hit at this because because we know it's a big concern for policymakers, and we know it's a big issue in the U.S. Uh, and and the bottom line is no evidence of of less work. In some particular cases, even evidence of more work. Right? I'm not not a lot. Right? My bottom line would say not a real a big change in work. But if I could say anything, it's either no change or sometimes a positive change when we look at some of the youngest mothers and when we look at, for example looking at exactly the same mothers over time, instead of looking at a big cross-section, we actually find some positive effects. But I would say the general, the bottom takeaway for us that I would be comfortable with is it doesn't cause people to work less in the Canadian case. Right, and that's very important because when you look again at the effect of the benefits on families' income, the fact that there was no effect on work means that Essentially, for every $100 of benefit, the family income increases by $100. There is no offsetting effect where people work less and therefore losing income from the work side. So in this particular case, what your study shows is that essentially the whole benefit goes to increasing this family's income. And therefore, in that sense, it's a very effective transfer, a very effective way of uh, giving more income to low-income people, and as we've seen, also lifting a number of them out of poverty through this transfer. So 
as you know, in the US right now, we have a debate about uh, whether the child benefit expansions should be made permanent and even whether there should be work requirements that are associated with these benefits. So what do you think we learn about these debates based on your analysis of the Canadian expansion of the child benefit? Well, I mean, a couple of things. The first is, I think that probably the concern, which in theory is legitimate over people working less and, you know, you lose the effect of, of the benefits of them being in the labor market is probably overblown to the extent that you think that the labor market in Canada and the labor market in the U.S. are similar. We don't find it in Canada. It may not be the case that there's a big employment, negative employment effect uh, in the U.S. either. Um, the second is, you know, if you're concerned with deep poverty, Right. If you're concerned with the people who are at the lowest part of the income distribution, and, and these are likely the people who are suffering the most, likely the people that were most affected by COVID, right? Um, requiring them to work makes it very difficult, right? For it, it, We're talking about kids, right? The mothers of kids. And if we're talking about the mothers of kids, that means the first hour they spend at work, um, they will need to be thinking about, okay, who takes care of my kid during that time? That often has a cost associated with it. Right. And so the work requirements can put you in a situation where I need to work to get any benefit, but initially I'm not even getting enough to cover the expenses of doing that work, taking care of the kids if they don't have a family member who can help or something like that. And so this is where I think the unconditional benefit can be very helpful, that in fact it makes it in some cases easier to go to work because you have some money, even at that very first hour of working, you have some money to be able to cover, let's say, for example, childcare costs. Right. So what we have to remember here is that childcare costs are really substantial and it ha hasn't been made any better by the pandemic, uh, where we've had a lot of issues with uh, childcare uh, center closures and so on and so forth. And so for a low-income mother to be able to go to work, she has to find some form of childcare. And when childcare is expensive and her wages that she could make are low, it could be very difficult to sustain even going to work. As you just explained, from an economic perspective, she can't cover the cost of childcare from her meager wages that she might be making. And so that puts the person in a cash 22 situation where because she's not working, she can't get help but also she can't afford to work because she may not be able to afford the kind of childcare that she needs to be able to work. And of course, people can rely on informal childcare, but unfortunately, that's often very unreliable. And therefore, it can be hard for these people to keep a job when you know they have unreliable childcare. So this is something that is easy to forget when we're thinking about how these benefits should be tied to work, that for this population, in deep poverty, it can be a serious obstacle, even if they wanted to. The situation makes it economically difficult for them to get to work. That's right. Just to go back to our to our results, right? As I said, overall, you know, the main result with, with work is that we find really no change. But where we do find a small change, it's positive, and it's for the youngest mothers often. And what's true about the youngest mothers? Well, Often they're the ones with the youngest kids, right? So they're not in school all day long. And often they're the ones where per hour, they're probably earning less. Right? So why could you possibly see a positive effect for a small group like that? Well, it gets to exactly the points you've been making, right? That, that there are fixed costs to going to work uh, and the less work pays uh, and the higher the fixed costs, then, then the more difficult it is to make that jump into the labor market. And, and 
a child transfer, a child cash transfer can help. So to put this in stark relief for our listeners, if we did put work requirements on, who would be most affected and how? So what we know from the evidence, right? So if, if your major concern is making people work more, work requirements will help with that. I don't want to ignore the fact that, that work requirements actually, to the extent that we have evidence of positive labor force um, effects, they come from having work requirements in there most of the time. But if you put work requirements uh, on, obviously those people who have no work, they, they, they have the most to lose, right? They will get no benefits, right? Those who are already working a little bit higher up the income distribution, they're going to gain more. So I think this is another issue that one has to think about when you're thinking about child benefits is who are you targeting? Are you targeting that working mom uh, who you know is already working 40 hours a week? They'll easily meet those work benefits and you'll add some income to their pocket. And that can be a good thing, of course. But if you're also concerned with the mom who's having a hard time getting into the labor market, who doesn't have much work or has no work, right, then the more work requirements you put on, the more you leave those people behind. Right. So fundamentally, one of the issues of work requirements is that they are going to leave behind the people who are unable to comply, who are often the most disadvantaged and the poorest. And we have to remember what's at stake here is that those kids, therefore, you know, aren't getting this benefit and the help that they need to hopefully do better in life in the future. So this is an important consideration to keep in mind. Again, your results show that these child benefits don't discourage work and therefore the main you know, extra effect of the work requirement, cert certainly if we look at the lowest income individuals, would be to cut them off from benefits uh, and therefore potentially have an adverse effect on the well-being of their kids and on the future of their kids. All right, terrific. Thank you so much. So one of the things I really liked in you know, talking to Mark about this is, you know, being able to think about how do you evaluate these policies. And, you know, that can be tricky because, you know, we can't just look at what happened after the policy was on versus before, right? Because the mm. problem is something else could have happened. For example, maybe there was more economic growth or maybe there was a crisis like COVID or, you know, all sorts of things happen so yeah. that it can be difficult, you know, to just look at before and after. So what they did here is they compared different families that, you know, because of the number or age of their kids, etc., had different benefit amounts. And so therefore they could compare families that gained more in benefits through various reforms versus families that gain less. And by comparing these different types of families, all of them are exposed to a recession, etc. Mm. But the benefits are different. And that's how they can get at the effect where essentially families, if you will, with lower benefit serve as a sort of control group, as a comparison group for families that got more benefits. And then by comparing those two, for example, if you're really worried that the benefits could discourage work, then you would expect that families with higher benefits, they were going to start to work re less relative to families with lower, ben uh, lower benefits. And that's really the key. It's relative to these other families uh, with lower benefits. And it's by comparing the two, the gap 
before the reform, let's say when benefits change and after the reform, then we can kind of try to disentangle what really happened because of the change in benefits versus anything else that could have happened in the economy. Again, like a recession or some other event. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you're, you're getting to something that um, we're trying to teach donors to understand, which is um, to think about what's the quality of the evidence that you're using to make decisions. And, you know, um, the way Mark designed the study was to make sure that the findings weren't based on um, something that people weren't interested in, in testing for. And it wasn't based right. on something that had nothing to do with the benefits. <laughs> exactly. Right? They really were trying to, what, what, what did these benefits actually do and not do? And, and it requires really thinking through um, the, the study design the way you just explained it. Exactly. And obviously the gold standard is when we can literally do an experiment, which can be possible for smaller scale intervention, especially with nonprofits. They can actually run a randomized control trial, just like you would do in the case of medicine, right? I mean, mm -hmm, everybody mm -hmm. might be familiar with the vaccine trials that have been done where you randomly select some people early on to get the vaccine. The others get a placebo, uh, you know, an ineffective vaccine. Then you compare who got COVID who didn't. And that's the gold standard for, you know, running a study to look at vaccine efficiency. So here we're looking at the efficiency of this policy and it's not really a randomized controlled trial, but we have other approaches where we try to compare those who are treated with this new policy relatively more versus those who are treated less and, you know, try to get our results this way. But, you know, really the gold standards, if we can, and it's not always feasible, uh, is to have this randomized control trial. Yeah. Well, it gets, you know, a, a kind of a saying that we have among our team at, at the Center for High Impact Philanthropy is we're always trying to get our hands on the best available evidence. Right? That's right. We're always making, I mean, everybody in their life makes decisions um, you can't predict the future. You can't have every bit of information that you might want to have. And, and there's plenty of research that says, and sometimes you you don't make good decisions <laughs> when you have too much information, but at least the best available information. And it sounds like um, Mark's study provides some really good and helpful information about um, the effects of these policies. So here's something that um, I found really helpful about the way he structured the study and the conversation that you and he had, which is just how important it is to understand the needs of different beneficiary segments and to match programs to the needs of that segment. It's, it's not like every low-income family or every woman um, or every child is exactly the same in their situation. And, and there's no like social program vaccine, right? There, even the vaccine we have for COVID right now doesn't work exactly the same way with every person. So, um, you know, I, I think that was a big takeaway for me, which is, um, you know, we, we speak to, we, we provide guidance to donors, um, understanding uh, which programs are most helpful to which segments of people. So, you know, I'm thinking about some of the work we've done recently on um, uh, connecting hard to employ people mm -hmm. with programs and, you know, uh, CEO Center for Employment Opportunities, they focus specifically on returning citizens, right? So what, what somebody who has been incarcerated needs is different from, say, um, the young people who are enrolled in Year Up, which is looking at... Um, 
young adults who maybe aren't are no longer in school don't have their first job, right? Different segments require different supports in order to get to to where we hope they get to, which is um, you know a livelihood that can sustain them. Right. And you know when we study policy, we often like to look at different effects on different subsegments of the population if we have data because that's well from a theoretical perspective it helps us understand what are the mechanisms of why the policy works or doesn't work or has different effects because mm -hmm. as you said different people have different kinds of problems and mm -hmm. a certain policy might be uniquely suited to addressing certain kinds of problems and also it's important for a practical reason which is that if we find out that some policy is particularly effective for some group of people well maybe we want to particularly target that policy mm -hmm. uh, you know to those people mm -hmm. um, so but you know, it's always a complicated design problem because certainly for big policies, like at the government level, you know, trying to target and slice and dice too finely has its own issues, such as, you know, for example, the fact that then you make people jump through so many hoops that people who need the benefits, you know, can access them because they have to verify that they have this paper and that paper and this proof, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're, you know, you're getting into uh, something that we've talked about before, which is um, why it can be so challenging for eligible people to access benefits that they're eligible for. Because if, if those programs have been targeted for a specific need that has specific requirements for eligibility. Now, the same person might uh, need to describe themselves <laughs> four different ways and go to four different agencies with four different forms in order to get the help that they they are already eligible for. Um, you know, the other thing that I, I really appreciated too was, um, you know, a lot of times in, in the you know, in a newspaper article or with when people are talking about policies, they'll, they'll just refer to moms, right? refer to women broadly. And the fact that um, there were real differences, um, uh, middle-class moms with kids versus low-income non-working moms with kids. You know, I, I think um, that that was a distinction that, you know, from the study really mattered. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. I mean, again, there's just different different populations and, you know, also in terms of how you might think about, for example, impacts on work. I mean, in this particular study, there were no impacts on work. But, you know, in some cases, if we're talking about moms of young kids, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing that they work a little bit less, especially if they were starting working long hours and now they're able to devote a little bit more time, you know, taking care of their kids. It's not necessarily a bad thing, you know. Um, so it, it, it's really a matter of evaluating the, the policy broadly and understanding the stakes for different uh, types of participants. I mean, the key takeaway from this particular study, though, is that, and I think that's really important, that in this particular case, and for child benefit, which is a large-scale program, again, in Canada, it didn't impact work. So in that particular case, it seems like we can decouple the issue of income support, so giving people enough cash to live on, versus the issue of work towards self-sufficiency, which is also important, but it seems like we can decouple those. We can you know, help people, give them income to work, and then we can also work, say, on their skills, like you, know, you mentioned Europe and so on, but it's possible to decouple those two. So good jobs are important, but you know, cash support is also important and doesn't seem to undermine you know, the goal of uh, getting people to be self-sufficient. 
Mm-hmm. So another policy bright spot. The trade-off that you were concerned about, at least from this study, doesn't seem like we need to make that trade-off. That's right. So that's really fortunate in this particular case. So hooray for research. <laughs> Hear that, Joe? <laughs> awesome. <laughs> All right, Kat. All right. Wrap Thanks. up. Wrap Great up. talking to you again. Yeah, same here. Looking forward to the next one. 